Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, How Hope Dawns. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading is from John 21 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that one stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. God bless the reading of his word. This summer, we're wrapping up a series through the Gospel of John. And last week, we were in John chapter 19, and we saw how two men took the lifeless body of Jesus down from the cross, prepared it for burial, and laid it in a tomb. In John chapter 20, everything changes. And it happens in steps that build anticipation when you're reading it for the first time. Just as the morning goes from dark till dawn, there also comes this increasing perception in the trio at the tomb. Mary, and then Peter, and then John, each gain a brighter and brighter perception that something amazing has happened. Now this dawning realization is heightened by the Greek verbs that John uses. In your Bible or in your sermon notes, I want you to circle the word saw as it shows up in three verses, verse one, verse six, and verse eight. First of all, verse one, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, verse six, then Simon Peter went straight to the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. And then verse eight, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, in those verses, John says that Mary saw and Peter saw and John saw. They were all looking at the same facts. But he uses three different Greek words that we translate into English, saw. So for Mary, John uses the Greek word or the form of the Greek word blepo. And this was a word that Greek speakers would use to speak of the physical act of seeing. If you are not blind, you blepo, you see. Then for Simon Peter, he used a form of the word theorio. This is where we get the English word theory. Greek speakers of the time would use the word theorio to speak of seeing the same facts that Mary saw, but investigating them, looking into them. 
And then for John himself, he used a form of the word ido. And uh, that is where we get the English word idea. So when Greek speakers would use this word, they would use it to speak of somebody who is looking at the facts, looking at the details, and forming an idea, drawing a conclusion, putting two and two together. Now this is how hope dawns. First, in the darkness of despair, we see the obvious stark facts of our situation, but we draw the wrong conclusions from them. And then second, we begin to see the same facts in a light that makes us doubt our pessimism. And then third, we see the same facts, and those facts cause us to have our hope restored. Now, this morning's study is going to be a useful one for anybody who needs hope, and that is all of us from time to time. If it hasn't happened to you yet, someday you're going to have a moment of great failure and you're going to wonder if recovery is possible. If it hasn't happened to you yet, some of us will eventually find our work or our marriage frustrating and we wonder if it isn't time to quit. If it hasn't happened to you yet, most of us will grieve eventually, or circumstances will one day overwhelm you, or some of us begin to ask, and usually at midlife, if there's a point to any of this. Every one of those situations calls us to ask, is there any hope? And if so, where can I find it? Today's passage says, it dawns on us. Mary and Peter and John all saw the same facts with their eyes, but they saw them in different ways. And the way they saw these things can serve as illustrations of the three stages that you move through when you're moving from despair to hope. So with your sermon notes, with a pen or a pencil, I want you to write these down, these stages. Here's the first stage. You see and you misinterpret. You see the stark facts before you, but you misinterpret them. You've heard the old saying, seeing is believing. But even our old sayings don't always help us out. Because sometimes we see, and yet we do not believe there's any hope. And that's the situation that Mary found herself in. On Friday, she had been at the cross. She watched Jesus die this horrible death. And now on Sunday morning, early, before dawn, she visited the tomb to keep vigil. And there she saw the stone rolled away. Now we mentioned last week, we were, as we were looking at John chapter 19 last week, I, I pointed out the, the details, especially of, of wealthier people of that time. Wealthier people would be able to hire somebody to commission a group of workmen to, to dig a tomb out of the side of a hill through the rock. And inside that tomb, it would be for an entire family. And so there would be a series of shelves dug into the walls of that, of that tomb. And therefore, you needed to be able to get into the tomb and out of the tomb across the years to place the bodies of loved ones as they died. And so what uh, a craftsman would do is he would take a rock and he would create a wheel-like structure. He would chisel a wheel-like structure out of that rock. And that way, that rock could be rolled out and rolled back and rolled out and rolled back so you could open and close the tomb over time. Mary, as she showed up early, early in the morning, she saw this stone had been rolled away. And when Mary saw the tomb open, her first thought was an understandable one. Someone had taken the body. Now, she may have assumed 
that it was a grave robber. Grave robbers would come in and take the jewelry and other valuables and and other things that were, that were useful to them. In fact, it had become such a problem that the Roman emperor, just a few years after this, would issue an edict declaring it a capital crime. You would, you would face the death penalty if you were a grave robber. So it was such a problem of that time that Mary must have assumed that grave robbers had rolled this stone away. Or, more likely, what she thought was it was the enemies of Jesus that had come and taken the body away. You remember last week when we talked about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These two men were uh, members of the Sanhedrin. This was the highest ruling body of the Jews at the time. And it was this group of men, the Sanhedrin, who were responsible for uh, ordering the death of Jesus or asking the Romans to execute Jesus. But there were two men who disagreed with this. Their names were Joseph and Nicodemus. They were followers of Jesus. And after Jesus' death, they requested from Pilate, the Roman governor, that they be allowed to come and take his body and give it an honorable burial. Now, the enemies of Jesus would not have wanted his body to have an honorable burial. And they also would not have wanted Joseph's tomb to, come, to become a shrine, a place where the followers of Jesus would come and continue to remember him and continue the movement that Jesus started. And so Mary must have assumed that the enemies of Jesus had come in to give Jesus' body a dishonorable burial. Now, what I'm saying is that Mary saw the physical facts, but she drew the wrong conclusion from those facts. And that's the state that you're in when despair has overwhelmed your life. You see the facts about your troubled marriage, and you conclude that nothing can be done about it. Or you see the facts of the learning challenges and behavioral issues of your child, and you conclude that you're never going to be able to bring a fulfilling and successful life to that child. Or you see the facts of you going back again and again and again to the thing that you've been addicted to, and you decide that there is no recovery possible for you. You see the facts, as stark as they are, but you draw the wrong conclusions from them. And that leads to second stage. The second stage is where you investigate and wonder. You investigate and wonder. Now, this is the point where you start to challenge the hopeless and pessimistic conclusions that you've been living with. When Mary came to Peter and John in distress and told them that someone had taken Jesus' body, her alarm alarmed them. Now, I said it was Peter and John that she went to. You look in this passage of Scripture, and John's name isn't mentioned. But as I've said before, in this Gospel of John, John never mentions himself by name. He always refers to himself in the third person as another disciple or the disciple Jesus loved or something like that. <clears throat> so in their distress, Peter and John ran to the tomb. And I imagine they were thinking, wasn't it enough that his enemies had gotten him killed? They want to dishonor his body at this point as well. That must have been what they were thinking after hearing the conclusion that Mary had drawn. Don't you like this little detail here that John says that he outran Peter? <laughs> I, I think at this point when John was writing the Gospel of John, he was an old man, but he remembered back in a time when he was younger and leaner and able to outrun people. And so he's, a, he's an eyewitness to this, and he gives this little detail. But what John was able to do in terms of speed, he was not able to do in terms of courage. So he got to the tomb first, but he didn't enter the tomb first. He stopped. He hesitated. He furtively peeked into the tomb, but that was it. 
but not Simon Peter. Uh, everything we know about Simon Peter, we see him as uh, impetuous, as filled with bravado. And so even though he was older and heavier than John and he got there second, he entered the tomb first. He passed the hesitant John and entered into the tomb. And there he saw the same facts that Mary saw. In fact, he saw more facts than Mary was able to see. He was able to look around and see that indeed Mary is right, that body was gone. But he began to notice things that caused him to conclude that Mary's conclusion wasn't so accurate. Somebody had not, in fact, taken the body. And he drew this conclusion because of the burial strips and the facial shroud. In last week's study, we saw how Nicodemus and Joseph uh, followed the first century customs of the Jewish world. Uh, they took the body of Jesus down from the cross and then they cleaned that body, they washed it. And then they began to wrap it in strips of linen. That's, that's the burial clothes of the time. We think of burial clothes today. We think of a woman buried in her favorite dress or a man buried in a suit and we go by the open casket and that's the burial clothes that we see. But the burial clothes in the first century world would have been these strips of linen and so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have begun to wrap the body with these strips, interspersing the layers of the strips with spices that uh, would, would, would hide the odor of decay. And so there would be these multiple rolls, multiple uh, 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 layers of, of strips of linen. It would be much like the images that we see today when we look at uh, photographs of ancient Egyptian mummies. And then a head cloth or a facial shroud would be wrapped separately around the head and the face. And that's the way they buried people. So it was these spice-crusted strips of linen that Simon Peter saw. And it made him scratch his head. Because if it had been thieves that had broken into the tomb, they would not have left behind these expensive strips of linen and certainly not 75 pounds of spices. Why in the world would they have left that behind, unwrapped this naked body of Jesus and taken that broken, wounded, dead body of Jesus away? That's not what thieves would have done. On the other hand, had it been the enemies of Jesus who had sought to take his body away, they would have taken it entirely away or in disagreement with Joseph and Nicodemus, they would have taken time to unwind that body and cast those strips left and right, cast those spices left and right in disregard of the honorable way that they had buried the body of Jesus. But that's not the way that Simon Peter saw these strips laid out. They, he saw where the body had been in the form where the body had been. These strips that once were wrapped around a body and upheld by the body, these layers and layers of strips that now just collapsed down upon themselves. And the facial shroud or the burial cloth that went around the head wasn't tossed to one side, it was folded and it was placed casually to the side. There was something that was deliberate. There was something that was unhurried about the scene. There wasn't anything chaotic, anything rough about the scene at all. And so Mary and Peter saw the same facts, but Peter began to worry if they had all drawn the wrong conclusion from those facts. Now, as I said, John used different verbs to describe how Mary and how Peter saw things. When he talked about what Mary saw, he used a form of the Greek word blepo, which just simply speaks of the physical act of seeing. But in Simon Peter's case, he used the word theorio. That's where we get the word theory. So Simon Peter saw things and he began to theorize from what he saw. He began to investigate. He began to think through regarding the things that he was seeing. 
Now, as Luke tells the story, in Luke chapter 24, verse 12, we read this, Peter saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. You can circle the word wondering there if you would in your, in your sermon notes. At this point, he, he didn't know what the answer was. But at this point, he knew what the answer wasn't. The body had not been stolen and not been taken away by Jesus's enemies. Now, I want you to think about your own life. The route out of despair toward hope isn't a matter of closing your eyes to the facts. It's not a matter of just wishing that things were otherwise. You're looking at the same things you were looking at when you despaired, but now you're looking at them in a new light, and you're beginning to wonder if there is hope. So you go to a marriage counselor who helps you see your troubled marriage in a new way. Or you bring your child to a therapist who convinces you that all is not lost. Or you, in your addiction, you show up to a 12-step group and you hear other people talk about being in the same sorry state that you currently are in, but they're out of it. And you begin to wonder if you can have recovery as well. And that leads to the third stage. Here's a third stage, you perceive and believe. You perceive and believe. In our story, John finally summoned up the courage to enter behind Peter into the tomb, and he saw the same things that Peter did. But he didn't just wonder over these facts like Simon Peter did. He made a decision from these facts. And once again, the Apostle John uses a, another Greek word that we translate saw. For Mary, he used the form of the Greek word blepo. She physically saw with her eyes what was before her. For Peter, he used the form of the Greek word theorio. He theorized about those same things that he could see with his eyes. But for the apostle John, he uses a third Greek word. He says ido. That's where we get the word idea. He put two and two together and an idea came to him. The body had not been stolen. It had not been moved. Jesus must be alive. Now, not alive like Lazarus came alive. A few months ago, we were in a few chapters past, John chapter 11. And uh, there we saw that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus stood at the mouth of that tomb, he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. He came out alive, and he was wrapped up like this mummy. He was wrapped up in these burial cloths, these strips of linen, just as Jesus' body was on Friday before the Sunday that we're looking at today. In John chapter 11, what does Jesus conclude? He says to the people around Lazarus, take off his grave clothes and set him free. Why did he say that? Because these grave clothes, these strips of linen, bound the body of Lazarus. It locked him in. It limited his movement. All he could do was shuffle out and hope somebody would be able to free him from those strips of linen. That's not the way that John saw things when he went into the tomb. Jesus didn't struggle out looking for somebody to free him from these strips of linen. These strips of linen had simply collapsed where the body had been. And John concluded that something miraculous had taken place. Jesus had not just been resuscitated, Jesus had been resurrected. Now, John, like any good Jewish man of his day, believed in the resurrection. One of many places we could look to in 
in, in the Old Testament and in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures is Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. John believed that. He believed that at the end of history, all people would be resurrected to face judgment. Nobody up until this point, though, believed that a resurrection would happen to one person before history was done. But John decided from the facts that this is what had to have taken place, that that which he anticipated for all people at the end of history had already begun in one person in the middle of history. Now, we read here in verse 9 that they did not yet understand from the Scripture that this was to be part of Jesus' story. But he looked at the facts and drew the conclusion that this had to have happened. You know, in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, the famous detective once described his process of deduction. He said, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And that's what John decided. He eliminated every inadequate explanation for why the burial clothes were laid out the way they were, but the body wasn't there. He, lay, he, he, he eliminated every inadequate explanation for that, and he let the facts take him, however improbable, to the only conclusion that he could draw. So verse 10 says, at this point, Peter and John both went back to where they were staying. As I said before, Simon Peter must have gone back wondering, but, Simon, uh, but uh, John went back pondering. He, 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 hadn't he didn't tell anybody at this point, and I, I can understand why. He, he was having to process through the implications of this conclusion that he had drawn in his heart. So just as the sun rose, hope rose in John. And, and now in your own life, when hope dawns on you, that's when changes can start taking place. You start working on your marriage because you've become convinced that it can be saved. You make a plan to help your troubled child because you believe you're convinced that despite his or her behavioral problems or learning issues, your child can have a fulfilling life. Or you start working the 12 steps because you've begun to believe that your addiction can have recovery. So we have three stages here that we all go through from despair to hope. Stage one, in the darkness of despair, like Mary, we see the obvious stark facts, but we draw the wrong conclusions from those facts, and we decide that there is no hope. Then stage two, like Simon Peter, we begin to see things that make us doubt our pessimism. And then finally, stage three, like the Apostle John, we see what restores our hope. Now, I've been talking today mostly to those of us who are believers, like Mary and Peter and John. Mary and Peter and John followed Jesus. They just needed a new realization of the astonishing facts of what his death meant and the reality of his resurrection. And you and I as believers, we need to move from despair to hope, believing that God has something good in store for our lives. So I've been speaking primarily to believers today, but let me give a word to those of you who are not yet believers. The same three steps that believers take to move from despair to hope are the same three steps that you can move from non-belief to belief in Jesus Christ. Stage one, you see and misinterpret. As a non-believer, you think that anyone 
who has a clear-eyed, hard look at the facts of this brutal world would draw the same conclusion that you have, that there's no way that there could be a God as described in the Bible in charge of all of this. And then, stage two, you investigate and wonder. You begin to look at those same facts. You begin to seek and to explore spiritual truth. And then stage three, you perceive and believe. It dawns on you that Christianity really is true. The same process that leads a believer from despair to hope is the same process that leads a non-believer to put his faith, her faith, and trust in Jesus as the Christ. When we look at the facts as believers, we're looking at the same things you're looking at as a non-believer, but we've drawn different conclusions that you have from a careful investigation of the facts. It's not that we're looking at different things. It's not that believers are closing our eyes to the things your eyes are open to. We're looking at the same things. We're just drawing different conclusions from those facts. I love the free-form poem that was written by Jean Murray Walker. It's called Staying Power. She wrote, like Gorky, I sometimes follow my doubts outside to the yard and question the sky, longing to have the fight settled, thinking I can't go on like this. And finally I say, all right, it is improbable. All right, there is no God. And then, as if I'm focusing a magnifying glass on dry leaves, God blazes up. It's the attention, maybe, to what isn't there that makes the emptiness flare like a forest fire until I have to spend the afternoon dragging the hose to put the smoldering thing out. Even on an ordinary day, when a friend calls and tells me they found melanoma and complains that the hospital is cold, I say, God, God, I say, as my heart turns inside out. Pick up any language by the scruff of its neck, wipe its face, set it down on the lawn, and I bet it will toddle right in the Godfire again, which, though they say it doesn't exist, can send you straight to the burn unit. Oh, we have only so many words to think with. Say God's not a fire. Say anything. Say God's a foam, maybe. You know that you didn't order a foam, but there it is. It rings. You don't know who it could be. You don't want to talk. So you pull it out of the plug. It rings. You smash it with a hammer till it bleeds springs and coils and clobbery metal bits. It rings again. <laughs> you pick it up, and a voice you love whispers, Hello. Doesn't that send chills up your spine? Those of you who are not yet believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope that you will take the steps that we've all taken to move from non-belief to belief. And then you'll come to that point where you recognize yourself that Jesus is our creator who has come to this earth to live our life, to die our death, to take away our sin. The one who is resurrected to glorious resurrection life as a model for the glorious everlasting life that we can enjoy as well. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal said something really interesting one time. He said, there are only two classes of persons who can be called reasonable. Those who serve God with all their heart because they know him or those who seek God with all their heart because they don't. Which reasonable person are you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray for those who need hope today. I pray for believers who need hope that you're not finished with them yet. There are still things you want to do in their marriage in their parenting, in their work, in their ministry. 
move them from despair to hope. And I pray for those who do not believe to come to you today. Let the realization dawn on them that you love them and that you have a wonderful plan for their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled Worship and Witness. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest to Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.